Hey there, listeners. It's Lee Hoy with the Capturing Nature Photography Podcast. This is the Nature Photography Podcast that examines the creative, technical, and unpredictable elements of photography in the wild outdoors. Here we go. Today's episode, I have three really cool topics I think that you're going to be excited to hear about. One is going to be, what about photographing in the Galapagos Islands? I just returned from my first solo guiding Galapagos workshop uh, through Wildside Nature Tours and Precision Camera and Video in Austin and Houston, Texas, and it was unbelievable. We really had some spectacular experiences like snorkeling face-to-face with Galapagos penguins. We had some wonderful photographic opportunities for landscape and needless to say wildlife everywhere. I'll be telling you about how to choose wisely when you're going to the Galapagos Islands for a photography trip. Another topic I want to address today are tripods, the proper selection, use, purchase. This topic came about because I bet 95% of my clients show up with an inappropriate tripod and I feel for them. There's nothing worse than trying to do a job and not have the tools to do it. A lesson that I learned the hard way as a young man and when it came to automobile maintenance, buying cheap tools and etc., trying to save money. And in the long run, you end up spending more. So let me talk about some of those techniques today. And then finally, I'm going to share five photo tips for beginning bird photographers. I want to help set some reasonable expectations and some of the things that photographers don't tend to focus on early on. And I hope this will help you have some wonderful bird photography experiences. Again, this is Capturing Nature with Lee Hoy. Welcome to today's podcast. Let's get going. All right, nature photographers, in today's On the Road segment, I'm going to be talking about the Galapagos Islands. I just returned from our June 2022 workshop. It was a very unique workshop. It was a small group. I think we only had six participants. The oldest individual was 58. The youngest was in their 30s. So it was definitely a uh, a different than normal type workshop. I'm glad to say we didn't have any falls on this workshop. Uh, The one before, seven falls by five people on that trip, and it got a little stressful at times. But I'm happy to share with you that this trip went amazing. Uh, All of them have in different ways. You know, the one before we had some amazing predator-prey encounters. This particular trip, certainly the highlight was snorkeling face-to-face with Galapagos penguins. I mean, we were in the water with them for 40 minutes, watching them hunt under us. They were catching uh, cardinal fish, just swimming through the rocks at speeds that are mind-boggling. One literally twice, uh, I had them just within an inch of my mask staring at me, just floating at the top of the surface with me. Three times they pooped near us. I don't know if that was a statement about their participation with us or just what penguins do. And then every time I came up spitting water while we were snorkeling, I always thought about all the penguin poo in the water. But it was really an amazing experience. We ended up having five different penguins all around us. Spent at least an hour and a half in the water until the panga threatened to leave me, which I think I'd have been all right with. And this was right at Bartolome Island, our next to last day in the Galapagos. So what a phenomenal way to finish out. Lots of great fish on the snorkels, sea lions, fur seal. I mean, this trip, you know, sheer waters. We did miss Short Eared Owl, which was kind of surprising. We gave it a good go. We spent an extended amount of time looking, but we made up for it with some really unique photographic opportunities. We had flamingos on the beach instead of at the lagoon, which was definitely unusual. We were sure missing Pedro, our our usual local naturalist, but our fill-in was great. He did a wonderful job. You know, whenever you have someone that you're used to traveling with uh, quite often and all of a sudden you can't, 
then you know it kind of it can kind of throw a little loop into things as well as in Ecuador on our way back we had some challenges dealing with protests over fuel prices and whatnot which to be honest I'd be happy to participate myself here in the US it's ridiculous I really want to share with you about photography workshops in the Galapagos Islands because there are so many options for trips to the Galapagos and if you let it boil down to money, you're going to probably find yourself a very unhappy camper when it comes to doing a photography workshop in the Galapagos. And the reasons I'm going to share that, and I'm going to go through all of them for you today. It's a very different experience if you're doing a liveaboard, which is when you fly down and fly out to the Galapagos and then stay on a boat versus trying to do it yourself the cheap way. Because there's only two airports and basically two islands you can kind of stay on when you're traveling on your own that uh, you can fly to Baltar and you can stay on Santa Cruz or you can fly into San Cristobal and stay there. And then what you're going to have to do are day trips. And here's what's going to happen for you on a lot of those destinations. First, you're going to miss a lot of the unique wildlife. You're going to miss a lot of the finches. Most likely, you're not going to get flamingos. I mean, there's there's just a lot of things you're going to miss out on. Plus, when you do a day trip, you're starting on the boat heading out when you should be on an island photographing. I mean, you're just not going to get great light unless you're photographing where you're, near where you're camping or staying. But the reality is, is that it's a very very different experience. And I realize not everybody has the funds to hop on a liveaboard and that's okay. But for those of you that do or can, or you're really debating, it is night and day. There is no comparison. The liveaboard is just such a better experience because A, you're going to visit more islands. B, you're going to get on those islands earlier if you go with us and, and perhaps I'm sure a few other photographers See, you're going to stay as long as you possibly can on each island. And I'll, I'll share with what happens with a lot of other groups. And then D, you're going to be on a much smaller group than you will if you travel with most other boats, okay? And you're going to be able to get places faster and, and have a better experience. Now, the reason I say that is a lot of times when you just look at price, uh, that boils down to time of year. So a lot of people end up going to save money. They're going to go when it's hot, when there's no breeze, you know, you don't have the, the water's not as cool because the currents are, the, the, you know, that cool current in coming in. And what's going to happen is you're going to go and it's going to be stifling. Now, I'm happy to say I've, I've completed, I think, my fourth trip. I'll be going back in September of this year. Here's what happens when we're there with Wildside Nature Tours. Kevin Laughlin has been at least 41 times. I think his 42nd trip is coming up. So needless to say, he knows how to do it and he knows how to do it right. This being my first solo trip, I've watched him in action, learned from him, and I, I see what goes on when we stay at our hotel. You know, even the waiters and waitresses run up, give us a hug because they know us so well. When we're doing the liveaboard and when we're doing our itinerary, you know, we're designed specifically for photography. And we want you to have a great experience. So what we do is we go at the good time of year. You'll see most of our trips are from May through October because that's the Guara season. Now, you might get a little mist, a little light rain occasionally, but honestly, not enough to have ever impacted my photography. But what you're going to find during the off season, during the hot season, again, there's no breeze. The temperatures are, are very warm, and it is just brutal. When we're there, there's actually times where it's almost quite chilly, particularly at night or early in the morning. I'm a hot-natured kind of guy. I don't care when I'm out photographing what the temperature is. I want to be out getting great shots, regardless of how cold, regardless of how hot, I will be out getting the shot. But there is something to be said for 
you know, when the temperature is nice and pleasant for an area that you expect it to be not pleasant most of the time. So yes, it is cheaper to travel at the rest of the time of year. That's because it's so unpleasant. Okay. It's awful. Uh, we do not run trips there when it's like that. You know, you've got so much time of the year where you can get great shots and and uh, still get great images. Unlike there's some destinations where in order to get the great images, you just have to go at certain times of weather. I mean, Yellowstone in winter, you really want it to be minus 10 or colder, right? Uh, then the bison will get in the hot springs. Big Bend, if you want summer monsoons, it might reach 90 or 100 degrees. Now, if a storm pops up, it might drop the temps. We were at 63 the other day. So sometimes you just have to deal with temperature extremes, you know, extreme humidity, uh, other climatic issues like lightning to get the shot. So we go when the weather is nice and that makes all the difference in the world. What else you're gonna find is there's an east and a west route. And we do the east route on the east route. So basically what it is, we go into keto, we spend the night, we have a day birding. Oh God, we had spectacle bear this past trip. You know, we went to Guango Lodge and had a great time there photographing birds. They've got a new uh, hummingbird blind that's really nice. And we go back to keto and then the next morning you fly to Guayaquil. And then we fly over to Balter. And what happens is as soon as we land at Balter, we head over for the docks, we get on the boat, and out we go to Santa Cruz. So we hit these islands in the following order. We hit Santa Cruz, Genovesa, South Plaza, Santa Fe, San Cristobal, Española, Floriana, and Santiago, and then Bartolome Islands. We miss Fernandina and Isabella. And what that means is we missed Flatless Cormorant. Now, Kevin has a special trip this year to coincide with his new book, Galapagos, A Natural History, with John Kircher and Kevin. I think it comes out in November of, of this year, of 2022. That's a second edition updated with lots of new images and lots of great stuff going on. But here's what you need to know. The amount of time you're going to spend on the island is going to be dramatically different. I know if you go with us, most of the other boats around us we're on the island an hour and a half, two hours before their first group ever touches the beach or the landing. We spend the max amount of time on the island. As Next thing you're going to notice is the number of people on board the boat. We take maximum 14 clients. You'll see other boats with 60, 100 people, and there are rules governing how many people can be on each spot on the Galapagos Islands and on what day. So if you've got a boat of 100 people, that boat's still been allocated the same amount of time as a boat with 14. So what that means is you're going to have to wait your turn. And then you're going to have to hoof it around the island. So, yep, you can go cheaper than you can go with us. Not a lot, but you are not going to have the same experience, particularly for photography. If all people want to do is lay on the beach and say they touch the Galapagos and see a sea lion here and there, you know what? Have a ball. Go cheaper. Yeah, whatever you want to do. That would bore the crap out of me. The last thing I want to do is go to the Galapagos and just sit and catch rays on the beach there. I'm ready to photograph. And I assume you're listening to this podcast because you want to photograph. So the number of people on board is dramatic. We see people still sitting on the boat eating their breakfast while we're shooting during golden hour, which is one of the most beautiful times of day, right? How many excursions? We do every single one possible. Kevin has made alterations to the itinerary to maximize some experiences. We do things that your generic tour group does not do. So you're getting to do more of certain things than if you were with a regular tour group. Remember, if you go with a regular tour group, not everybody's a photographer. They're going to be rushing. They don't care if you have to wait a little bit to get your settings. And they don't care if there's a great wildlife experience. They've already seen it. They're going to move on. Yes, there's a local naturalist on board every boat required, but 
none of those are going to be professional photographers. You know, they might be photographers, but they're not going to be there to instruct you, to tell you about the changing light, what your ISO should be, how to post process. You know, they're not going to have all of those different things. So that's key. If you're looking into a photography workshop in the Galapagos, ask what is their specific itinerary and compare that to others. Because you'll note that not all photographers make the same adjustments we do. Many don't. You need to take a look at the specific itinerary, not just the generic, hey, we're going to this island. What are you going to do at that island? I would ask, if you're looking at companies, what time do you typically get on the island, right? We get we get on the Pangas to head to the islands at 6.30 a.m. Now you're near the equator, so sunrise and sunset are almost identical every single day. It's very predictable. So we're getting out there first light, start shooting. And we stay as long as we possibly can. I mean, I think everybody who's gone with Wildside will tell you it is a huge maximum amount of time on the islands. I know Charles Glatzer, Chaz, Canon Explorer Light went with Kevin. He tells everybody that's the way to do it. Go with Kevin. Go with Wildside. You know, hit the islands. And one thing about Kevin is he takes many other photographers. It's not just me that goes with him. We've got other Wildside guides. Every now and then we have folks outside of Wildside that go with us. So. It's a great opportunity to, A, be with Kevin, who's gone many times, B, be with other wildside photographers, and C, sometimes experience a special photographer on board. Take a look at the specific itinerary. What islands are they hitting? Where are they going? How long are they going to spend on the island? We do snorkeling as well. You know, how many snorkeling trips do they go out? Man, snorkeling, you know, you get great encounters with turtles. I had a, I had a sea lion scare the dickens out of me this past trip. I'm snorkeling along a reef wall near where the uh, Champion Island. And while we're there, a young sea lion came up and he was kind of playing around us, going between us and the wall. And all of a sudden, he, I couldn't see him. He was behind me. He went right over the top of my legs and his his fur brushed up, you know, up against my legs. And that gave me a startle for sure. But, you know, he was just playing around. He's having a great time. So, you know, are there snorkeling trips? How many? Uh, do they do kayaking instead? You know, this trip we did one kayaking, the, the see-through kayaks. But, you know, overall being in the water is a little better. I think that it would behoove you to do your research on the itinerary. What time? Ask specifically, what time do you get on the islands? How long do you tend to stay on the islands? Islands, okay. He's got a little hitch in he's his real wobble, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah, he's got a little. Now, when you go to the Galapagos, you're going to be mainly focusing on two types of photography, and that's wildlife and landscapes. Question becomes: Should you take a tripod? You know, that's a tough one. Uh, some of the some of the trails are more challenging, rocky. They're not necessarily steep, unless except for when you're going up Prince Edward Steps. You know, there at Genovesa, that that can be a little bit of a challenge to get up with tripod. And frankly, you're not doing any landscape up there. So there are certain islands I like to have my tripod with me, like the morning landing at Española. I know I'm going to do some landscapes. I'm going to do some landscapes at the afternoon Española site. Most of the time, I, I, I did some slow shutter stuff this time. It's tough. I don't take it on every island. And if I'm taking underwater camera gear as well, yes, it would be nice to have a tripod. And I'm going to talk about tripods here in a later segment on this episode. But it's a toss-up. Depends on how much you want to do with landscapes. I like doing some slow shutter speed, you know, beach scenes with the rocks. I do slow shutter speed stuff with crabs on the rocks and the waves coming in. So for me, it's worth it to take it. At least it was this last trip. You know, I've, I'm going to be talking about the Platypod Extreme Max here in a future episode uh, that just came in. I have the Platypod regular you may be able to go smaller and still get what you want. But I just think that there are times where it is handy to have it. 
if you want to do slow shutter stuff. For wildlife, it's probably not worth it. Maybe a monopod. I used to take a monopod. I no longer do. I just shoot at a high enough ISO. I'm not afraid of high ISOs. I'm working on a webinar called The Nervous Nature Photographer's Guide to Shooting at High ISO. You'll be able to see that on the Wild Side Big Marker channel. A tripod is smart if you want to do some good landscape photography with slow shutter speeds, then yes, you should travel with a with a tripod. You know, do you want to do underwater photography? Then you may not want a full-blown underwater housing and big camera, but you might want to get something like the Olympus TG6. That's a great underwater camera just to grab you some underwater shots. Probably won't be doing anything too spectacular uh, if you're new to snorkeling and underwater photography, but it's a great camera. If you look online, you'll see some phenomenal shots with the Olympus TG6. And yes, I'm biased. I'm an OM system ambassador, but uh, I, I'll also talk about what is really good gear when I need to. So that's kind of what you're looking at. You know, when you go to the Galapagos, do your research. Make sure the itinerary is fitting for photography. Just because it's a Galapagos tour and they show pretty pictures on the website, that doesn't mean it's a photography workshop. It doesn't mean it's photography focused. They are just going to appeal to the traditional tourists. When we were on Española in the morning, okay, Gardner Bay, We'd been on for at least an hour and a half, two hours. And by, I mean, man, I got some of my favorite landscape shots in the Galapagos this trip. I'll share some of those on the, on this podcast episode, uh, homepage for this one. I got some of my best shots that morning and the light was soft and beautiful and great clouds. And I mean, the waves and no footprints on the beach. Two groups came in, one an hour and a half after us, one probably between two to three hours after us. And the one that came in two to three hours after us, I noticed there was a photographer on the trip and he had the Olympus OM System M Zuko 150 to 400, 4.5. I mean, a hardcore serious wildlife photographer. And I felt so sorry for this man. They stood in a circle around their local naturalist for at least an hour. And he didn't get any shots. I mean, just standing there. So here he has a $7,500 lens, all the money in his gear. And all he's doing is standing around listening to somebody just rattle off forever. That's not a photography workshop. It's fun to have a naturalist tell you a little bit about Kevin knows, you know, uh, the Galapagos Islands inside and out. That's why he wrote a book called Natural History of the Galapagos. And I know some stuff pretty well. I'm still learning. But I'm telling you what, even, even if I know it inside and out, I'm not spending an hour and a half making you stand in a circle. That's not a photography workshop. We all felt so sorry for that group. The other group was wandering around some, you know, they were taking, you know, your generic tour shots, standing up, not laying down on the beach, horrible angles there with when the light was starting to get a little harsher. So I really felt for them. I want you to know, if you want one of the greatest photography experiences you can have, get to the Galapagos. But Make sure you do your research. Why not spend a little extra money? You're spending a lot of money anyways. It isn't a cheap trip, period. Why not spend enough money to make sure you're going with a reputable photography workshop company, you know, like Wildside? Why not make sure that the workshop instructor is somebody you really want to travel with? Make sure you have an extra day in Quito in case your luggage doesn't arrive. Because if you land in Quito and immediately go to the Galapagos the next day, what if your camera gear, what if your luggage doesn't arrive? What if, what if you forgot something? I mean, there's a lot of what ifs. We give ourselves that day, okay? Do your research. Kevin runs four or five trips every year to the Galapagos. Uh, again, this year he's running one that does both the east and the west uh, routes. It's a fun, that would be a phenomenal experience. I think that you know you get wide angle 
wildlife shots. It's a nice beach on many of the islands that you land on, Genovesa. You know, no doubt for me, I would say my favorite islands are Genovesa. I think South Plaza, Española. I mean, San Cristobal, the first stop in that morning. Bartolome with the penguins. I mean, it's really hard to choose, but Española is pretty high up there. I have seen some family members who did a Galapagos trip. I've talked to other people that have done a Galapagos trip, and there is a huge difference for photographers. If you're just going to do a general tourist trip, who cares? You know, I mean, if you just want to sit on a boat, eat breakfast, and say you went to Galapagos, fine. I would be throwing people overboard on most of the trips I'm looking at. The day trippers arrived on Santiago. The day trip boat got there so late that the light was pretty harsh. I was just sitting down on some rocks in the surf there, just enjoying the waves. I did photograph a few things as the clouds moved. Just understand it behooves you to do your research. It behooves you to pay the price for a photography workshop behooves you to do your research on who's going and in the long run have a phenomenal wildlife and landscape photographing experience thanks for the tip lee yeah you go ahead All right, nature photographers, I'm going to introduce a new segment called Tools of the Trade for you today. And this segment is coming out of an utter and complete frustration with what I see happen to so many photographers. And when I say so many, I literally mean probably 90 to 95 percent of my clients, whether they be with Big Ben Birding and Photo Tours, Wildside Nature Tours, or through Precision Camera and Video. I would say 90 to 95 percent have completely insufficient tripods for the task at hand. And when I say that, I'm not exaggerating. I so often see people struggling time and time again with their tripods, which are not sturdy enough, which are cheaply made. And the biggest reason I think for this is, A, people generally buy cheap tripods. And the irony to me is this. You have spent thousands of dollars on gear. Let's face it, this is not cheap hobby. You've spent thousands of dollars to travel with me to some exotic or domestic, you know, wonderful destination. You're going to Yellowstone. You're going to Galapagos Islands. You're going to Ecuador. You're going to Zimbabwe. You're going to Big Bend, wherever you're going. And you have travel cases. You've got outdoor gear. You've got your food. You've got all these expenses. And then you show up with this little cheap-ass tripod. I wish I were fibbing when I said I've had a client show up, thousands of dollars of photo gear, with a freaking Walmart Sunpack tripod. I was terrified that their gear was going to break, and it was very obvious very quick that it simply wasn't going to work, and rightly so. I mean, I wouldn't trust putting any of my camera gear on those. I use the handles to hold florist, you know, water the green things to put flowers in for hummingbird photography, but by God, that's it, you know? I'm going to talk about how to properly purchase, select, and use different tripods. Because if you're going to spend all this money, why go cheap there? Now, I'm not saying you always have to buy the most expensive tripod. I'm saying you need to buy a tripod that is sufficiently sturdy enough for what you plan to use it for. Here's a great example. Just not that long ago, I was in Big Ben doing one of my summer storms and starry skies workshops for precision camera and video. We're sitting over at the Boquillas, Mexico overlook where the Rio Grande comes through. You've got Boquillas Canyon off to the left. And there was just an amazing thunderstorm developing. One of the largest dust devils I've ever seen in my life. Got some phenomenal shots of it. 
And at one point, this big kaboob is blowing at us. I mean, the dust, the wind. For some reason, I have several different tripods. I never get rid of a tripod, even ones that aren't my favorites. I just have a thing. I do not let go of tripods, camera bags, uh, ball heads, you know, you name it. There's certain things I just, I just won't get rid of them. There's just too many uses. And I had two different tripods with me, and I'll talk about my tripods later. But I pulled out the Gitzo tripod with the really right stuff, BH55 ball head. I mean, their biggest ball head. This tripod is a three-leg segment tripod. I bought it to, when I was using the Canon 600 and the big monster full-frame cameras carrying all that stupid weight. This tripod is solid. I think it's rated to handle in the upper 60 pounds or something more. I mean, it's nuts, right? And at one point, and I was standing right by the tripod, even though I was using the new wireless remote for the OM-1, which is just phenomenal. I love that. It's so simple. And a gust of wind came in with that storm and lifted up the tripod. And this is as probably as heavy, this isn't a carbon fiber. This is as heavy and sturdy a tripod as you'll find. And it lifted up one of the legs and I grabbed it and pushed it back down. That is why I don't go cheap on my tripods because when you most often need it, I mean, imagine if that tripod had been unattended. And I tell you, I see so many incidents with unattended tripods because they're not sturdy enough, because they're not set up properly. I've seen it time and time again and it is an ugly thing to behold. Let's talk about why people end up in this situation. A, they want to save money. That's one thing. They want to go cheap. And again, there are places to save money. Memory cards. I've tried a wide variety of memory cards, and I've got a little secret one on that that's not the most expensive and just as fast as all the others. So I don't go out saying I need to spend the most amount of money on this subject, whether it be a camera bag, whether it be water bottle, a shirt. I just want what's going to work best for the job, okay? And a lot of times that does end up costing more money, right? But not always. So here's what happens. You go into your local camera store, not Amazon. Oh my God, please do not buy. When it comes to camera gear, let's support our local camera stores. You know, they'll often price match. What really ticks me off, I had someone spend a long time with me one day asking me questions online. And instead of buying their OM system gear through my website, then they went and bought it through some other thing. Well, they didn't get all that help and assistance from them. I ended up getting no benefit from it whatsoever, other than just knowing I do my job and I do my job well regardless. But I tell you what, if you think I wasn't frustrated. It's like, really? What'd you say? 50 bucks, a hundred bucks? How much is my time worth? I, you know, I spent, I spent a lot of time answering questions. So please, please, please. So you go to your local camera store and here's what most people say. I want a good travel tripod. Well, right off the bat, your camera store salesman, who's probably a great person, great man, great woman, great photographer. They hear travel tripod. So they immediately think short and light which that defines most travel tripods. I have never once gone out to purchase a tripod thinking I need a good travel tripod. I've thought about the features that might make it more conducive to traveling with most travel tripods that I see uh, that you find in most local camera stores. I am not putting my gear on that. It's just too small. It's just not reliable. Why do I want to set thousands of dollars of camera gear on a $150 tripod? 
you know, that 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 equation is upside down, it, particularly if you're going to walk away and leave it unattended or you want to do time lapse, you want to shoot in rough weather conditions, you're going to be on the beach with waves. I've got shots of using my Photo Pro E6L tripod. I have set it up in the ocean with a foot and a half, two foot deep in the water. Now, I had some rock under me, wasn't all soft sand, and got nice sharp shots using uh, like live composite, live neutral density filter, and got tack sharp shots. Uh, a cheap ass travel tripod, I'd never get that shot. So when you go in, in fairness to your camera store salesman, they are simply doing what you ask them to do. So I don't really blame them. And, and I know you're going there thinking, well, they're going to help me. They are helping you based on what you told them. They are doing exactly what you told them. I want a good travel tripod. Boom. Look how small this one collapses up to. Oh, that's great. Now, what just drives me nuts is I look over and I'll have a six foot three client and their tripod extends to a maximum of 40 something inches. And they are in the most uncomfortable position, craning their neck, their head. I mean, it's just it is brutal to watch. It is sad. And then you see the movement. You see the flex, the give in the legs of the tripod. Oh, I'm telling you, I just ache all over. You should choose your tripod not based on how light it is. That should be an interesting factor. But lighter is just not always better. You do not want to choose your tripod on how short it collapses. You need to choose your tripod based on how tall it gets and how tall you are without a center column. You will not find me owning a tripod with a center column. It's useless. It's a waste. It's not sturdy. And I'm going to talk about how most people set up their tripods. It is just a waste of time to buy it. You can't lower your tripod down lower. Some people say, oh, look at this. I can turn my camera upside down and get shots by inverting the center column. Who the hell ever does that? That is a nightmare. I have yet to see anybody in the field do it. I know there's some rare circumstances where it might be useful, but first off, you got to take the time to swap it in and out. Nobody's going to do that. Stop falling for those silly gimmicks. You want sturdy for your gear, and that's going to be based upon what gear and what does your gear weigh? Let's just say weigh six pounds combined. Why buy a tripod that's rated for seven pounds? You're buying at the bottom. Find one that's rated for 18 pounds, 20 pounds, and you'll probably be a lot better off. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about your height in terms of inches. And then I want you to think about a tripod that when the legs are fully extended without a center column, when the legs are fully extended, is that close to your height? Now, assuming you have a ball head on it, or a gimbal, you know, that's going to put it a few inches above that, okay? So you might have a few inches, give or take. But what happens is when you get a tripod too short, you're hunched over. Your shoulders pull in. Your neck is a bent at a bad angle. And trust me, it does not take long before that gets very uncomfortable. So if you're sitting in a, in a blind, if you're shooting landscape long, you know, long time, night sky stuff, it's just miserable. If it's slightly shorter and you're only using it occasionally, uh, maybe, but I, I don't buy tripods that way, okay? Think about buying a tripod that will get to your height. Now, what that means is... How many leg segments does a tripod have? There's three, four, five. Sometimes there's more. The more leg segments you get, the shorter the tripod will often collapse, but the less stable that tripod will be. I've seen people with this new peak design. I've wanted to like that peak design tripod. You know, it kind of looks like a triangle. 
I thought, man, it'd be nice to have something collapse that small. I'm just going to tell you what, I've had several clients with it, and I've had to help with some issues with them. They're just junk. I mean, Peak Design, I'm sorry, but they're junk, man. That is a terrible tripod. The legs give so much. The connector, you know, you've got this little tool. I've had people leave that tool behind. It's just junk. I wish, and believe me, I've picked it up two or three times. I've had three or four clients with it. And out in the field, it has failed in every situation we've been in. It's not strong enough. Now, maybe if you only extend it one or two legs out, maybe you'll be fine. But if you need any height, forget it. It is junk. And I'm sorry to say that. I am I know I'll never get any sponsorship from Peak Design, but you know what? That's just the way it is. I mean, I'm, I, I've just seen it Every single person in the field, I say, oh, yeah, here's what's going to happen, right? Look at the legs. The fewer the leg segments, the sturdier it is. However, that means the leg segments must be longer to extend to certain heights. So it makes it a little harder to travel with. My big Gitzo tripod, it would be a nightmare to put in a bag. It's an older aluminum tripod. It's no longer made, but that thing is a beast. So for photographing around home, for photographing, I'll take it in the truck. You know, I shoot with it a big bin. I'm not flying with it to the Galapagos. It would take a ton of the weight in my bag. Another great reason I chose to move to OM Systems camera gear for the lightweight. But I still have not based a single tripod purchase on weight alone. Yes, my newest tripod, the Photo Pro E6L, is phenomenal. It is a four-segment tripod, so it does collapse up lower, yet it still extends without a center column to the height I need it based on my height. I'm 5'7". I am what you call perfectly average when it comes to height. I am spectacular in at least two or three categories, and I suck at everything else in life, but I am spectacularly average when it comes to height, which kind of makes it easy and really good on a lot of things in life. What I'll tell you is that tripod is carbon fiber, so it's light. So you want to save some weight, spend the money and go carbon fiber. I love this tripod. The four segments and I have what I call a flex test with tripods. I extend all the legs, not a few, all. And then what I do is when that tripod, when all the legs are secure, I like to grab two of the three legs and I like to push in a little bit. And I want to see how much that tripod gives. And if it gives quite a bit or even a little bit, uh, you know, if I can flex it a lot, that is not going to work for me. It's not going to be sturdy enough. A little bit of give. Yeah, that's going to be fine. You can do a stress test, a flex test, whatever you want to call it. If you extend all those legs and it gives like crazy, well, what do you think that's going to do in a 20 mile per hour wind when you're trying to do a long exposure to capture lightning or a waterfall? A lot of waterfalls have pretty good strong breezes at the bottom. What are you going to do if it's got that much flex? Oh, yeah, you might photograph on a perfectly still day, but good grief. What are you going to do in most situations? You're not going to be able to set it up in water. I set this Photo Pro E6L up in Alaska on the edge of a rapidly flowing stream so I could shoot waterfall. Pouring rain. Worked great. Sturdy man, long exposures, tack sharp, boom. So happy with it. Now, here's another item that I'm looking for when it comes to purchasing a tripod. You know, there's tripods. There are those that have the screw legs, you know, where you tighten them by screwing and rotating. And then there are those that have the little clamps that you fold over. Those clamps suck. They will always 
loosen on you. And then you've got to carry a tool around to tighten those stupid clamps. I'm looking at a Benro I bought early on. Yep, I don't worry. I wasted money too. These are sturdier. They're aluminum and they're a little longer legged. And I used it early on when I was, you know, getting into dragonfly, damselfly photography, kind of getting back into photography after a little bit of a hiatus uh, when my film camera broke before I went digital. And I'm going to tell you what, I used to have to carry a little tool just to tighten those stupid things back up. I have not and never will buy a tripod with those little clamps. I want to screw my legs down and make sure they are 100% tight. I also, when it comes to the screw ones, I don't want to have to make 73 and a half rotations to loosen or tighten a leg. The photo pros, a slight turn, it's loose enough to pull out. A slight turn, it is secure. I'm not making 47 revolutions around spinning forever because often if I'm chasing storms, if I'm doing low light wildlife photography, setting up in a blind, the last thing I want to be doing is fiddle farting around with a tripod. I want to get it set up, set up quick and start capturing images. I don't want to have to fiddle fart around with tools. I don't want my tools to become an obstacle to, to photography. I want my tools to enable me to capture better images. And your tripod is going to be one of the most critical tools you have. I see a lot of people, particularly older folks, and I know tripods can be a pain for some. But you know what that tells me? That tells me you're an impatient photographer and you're probably not going to get that good anyways. Because particularly for landscape photography, a tripod is going to slow you down, which makes you think about your composition. It makes you think about the image. It makes you think about the light. And patience is critical for most types of photography. Slow down. Get three or four great images instead of a thousand crappy ones, right? I get tired of looking at crappy images after one. Slow down. Get patient. Use your tripod to make your photography better. I want a tripod that is secure. I want a tripod that is as tall as I am. I want a tripod that is lighter, lighter, not light, lighter than what possibly the heaviest one might be. So carbon fiber, yep, you spend money for it, but that helps, right? I want a tripod that's going to do the job and I want one that's going to work in bad climate and bad waves. I don't want something that's only going to work when there's no wind and I'm on a perfectly flat surface, a perfectly stable surface. You know, what about sand? You know, have you ever tried to photograph the edge of a, of a beach when the waves are coming in and you know, you know how you'll move with the, with the water going out and the sand, same thing. I need sturdy tripods. Now, I'm going to brag. One of the things I really like about the Photo Pro E6L is that it has a self-leveling head. If you buy a tripod and you think you're going to get it real level by adjusting just the legs, that's going to drive you nuts. It, it is maddening. And you get it level and then you bump it and oh my gosh. So one of the things I would highly suggest about looking at Photo Pros is like this E6L, it comes with a gimbal head. And it's got this built-in leveling head it, like a video bowl. It's wonderful. It saves me so much time. I simply get my legs where I need them. I eyeball it for level. And then I use that to level the gimbal. And I can do that before I put my camera on it. I can do it after I put my camera on it. It's wonderful. That's a great feature. You want to look at the feet of tripods. That Gitzo tripod is very expensive. 
Two of the three have been lost over time, and I couldn't find the exact replacement. That was maddening. That was frustrating. There's no excuse for them to come unscrewed. I have never had an issue with my PhotoPro feet. And what I love about their feet is they're naturally built in. They have these uh, spikes, but they're covered with these really firm, sturdy rubber tips. Now, when you hear me say that, you're going to think, yeah, those are going to come off and get lost. Not once have I ever had that issue. And believe me, I'd be honest if they did. You can tell I don't mind griping about crap that doesn't work when you pay for it. So... I think it's very important that you look at the feet of your tripod. Now, I have never had to use the spikes yet. I could see on ice there's some other situations where I might want to. But frankly, these rubber feet work so bloody well, I've never had a problem. They don't come off. You get extras when you buy it. You get a phenomenal carrying case. You get with the gimbal, you get an L bracket that, for mounting cameras and whatnot. You get a lot of stuff with it that you go, my God, you know what? I spent a lot of money, but I got my money's worth. I mean, that bag alone is so nice. And I don't always carry my tripods in a bag, but it's really handy when I do. And when you look at the angle adjustment, and this isn't really about the photo pro, this is about selecting a tripod, but it's about looking for additional features. This has a feature I've never seen on any other one. I call it the photo blind neck saver. You can press a button in and you can lean your gimbal head forward or backward at, I believe it's 45 degree increments. No, 30 degree increments. 15. Good grief. Uh, 15. Look on their website. You know, I can pull my camera back so that rather than leaning forward to look into my eyepiece, I can actually sit upright with good posture and my neck isn't killing me at the end of a day in a blind. If you're a bird photographer and you like to shoot from blinds, move to the Photo Pro tripod. I mean, my goodness, it is a huge neck saver. And they've got different sizes. So if you're still shooting full frame, big old heavy crap, or some of the heavier mirrorless cameras that are coming out, you know, like I love listening to Nikon and Canon guys brag about how light their stuff is, and they have no idea how much lighter the Olympus stuff is. You know, they think, oh, wow, look, I'm down to six pounds. I'm like, oh, great, good for you. You know, I can shoot at a thousand millimeters lighter than that. For me, it's about what additional features come. It has got to be sturdy. If a tripod isn't sturdy, then everything else is meaningless because that's the main purpose of a tripod is, will it keep my camera stable while I take images? Is it a good foundation to build upon? And then if it is, then what other things? Is it carbon fiber? That's going to save you some weight. What is the minimum size ball head that will still work? I have the Really Right Stuff 55. I have a Really Right Stuff 25, and they are massively different. And I got that Really Right Stuff 25 recently to put on the Platypod Extreme Max, kind of a tabletop, little easy portable tripod. But I can tell you, if I were wearing my gloves that I use in Yellowstone in winter, it might drive me nuts because it's got one lever. I don't know how well I could grab it. I've kept that huge, heavy 55, really right stuff, 55 ball head because I've got big, thick fingers. Then you slap on a liner glove and then you slap on a mitten over that with the heat company gloves that I talked about a few episodes back. And even though those are great gloves, I'm telling you, you start getting into some of these ball heads, be terrible with these stupid little dials horrible. You know, if you're going to photograph in winter a lot, when you want to try out a ball head, put those gloves on, see if you can use it. Uh, Enduro, I have had so many clients come out with those little travel tripods and those ball heads come loose and you've got to have the tools to keep them tight. And I don't have time to fiddle fart around with that. I'll help you. But when I'm out photographing, I, I would just throw that tripod as far as I could see it. Then I'd go pick it up and dispose of it properly. Most of them are crap. Sorry, Enduro. Most of your little travel tripods aren't working redesign them 
make them sturdier. Stop selling people these items that don't work well. They're just crap. And you know what? I'm out in the field. So if they want to argue with me, great. I don't care how many tests you do on it. I'm talking about real life in the field experience. You want to come out and do night sky? Don't bring a cheap ass tripod. You're going to lose your mind. If there's the slightest breeze and you're doing a 15, 20 second, 25 second exposure, guess what? You will know it. So those are a couple of things to keep in mind when it comes to choosing a tripod. I encourage you, do your research. I will never buy a tripod mail order. My hands have to go on it. I've been wanting to add some more. I like having multiple tripods. I bought a Star Tracker recently. You know, this big heavy gets will be perfect for it. But that means I, I might want to look another one. Uh, I'd like to get a little bigger Photo Pro, have this one for my travel, because I like to stick a lot of gear at times on stuff, right? I want to be able to go back and forth. I like having different ball heads. I just got the Platy Ball Elite, Platy Pod, Platy Ball Elite ball head. It's great. I'm enjoying it. It's nice. It's small. It's, it's lightweight, but it is very sturdy. I have many because I do a lot of different types of photography, and not one tool fits every situation. What you want for a tripod that you're going to travel with, you want one that's going to work in as many situations as possible. Okay. I realize not everybody wants to go spend thousands and thousands of dollars of tripods. I'm a pro. That's what I do. So those are some of the things I want you to go out and look for, you know, no center column. Uh, let's talk about setting up your tripod. Oh dear Lord, do we need to talk about this? All right. So when it comes to setting up your tripod, you do not start with the lightest legs first, unless you know you're going to extend your tripod all the way up. But let's say you don't know exactly how tall you're going to take it. You start by extending the thickest legs first. Those are the sturdiest. Do not put the smallest legs up first. Those are the least strongest, right? So you start by opening the big legs first. And whether you have a three, a four, or a five-segment tripod, that's how you do it. I see most of the time people extend a leg or two and then they start cranking that stupid center column up. And so right off the bat, they are minimizing their chance of getting a nice sharp image. And they're using the tool completely backwards, completely backwards. That is not how any engineer has ever designed a tripod was for you to put your legs partially up and then crank a center column, you know, a foot and a half up. You might as well handhold probably would work out better. So you're going to extend the top legs down. If you were standing on a hill and you put a single leg downhill, you extend it the longest. The other two are back towards you and they're shorter. That will keep your tripod from tumbling downhill. If you put the two legs downhill, it can easily tip because most people are going to take time to adjust it well. But I recommend one leg downhill. Two legs uphill towards you, the two legs uphill shorter, and the longer leg going downhill. That's going to give you much more support, okay? Then I recommend a good, sturdy ball head or gimbal designed for your camera gear. Not designed for someone else's. It's not about buying the lightest or the cheapest. What's going to work for you? And then you can make the right decision. What are the dials like? How are the locking mechanisms? Is it intuitive? I see so many people trying to figure out what dial does what. Spend time with it in the store. Put your hands on it. Take a pair of gloves with you. Can you operate it with that? I mean, if you're going to go to Iceland, you're going to go to Finland, you're going to go to Norway, you're going to go to the Yellowstone in winter, you're going to go to Alaska, and you got gloves on, can you operate it with gloves on? All of mine, I know I can. 
some of them I choose not to, like that old Benro thing. Oh my gosh, I, you know, I keep it around. So like if I need to put something for camera trapping outside and I don't care if a tripod gets broken, that's the one. I'm not going to put one of my best ones out there overnight with these stupid feral donkeys I have up here that range around our wonderful area destroying habitat. That's another conversation. That's for one of my clicked off segments. So again, back to height, make sure it's tall enough for your height. Okay. Then here's another consideration. How low can it go? If you got a center column, that's dictating that, right? How low can it go? A lot of times you want to shoot down low. How easy is it to pull the little locks at the top out with gloves to drop those legs lower? How sturdy is it when you go low? Because a lot of times you're going to be shooting landscape. You might be shooting shorebirds and you might want to get that camera way down low. So again, we talked about feet already. What are the feet like? Do they have spikes? Are they rubber? Do they unscrew easily? You know, a client here in Big Bend was borrowing a tripod, one of those enduro travel tripods. Again, throw it in the pile of crap. And one of the feet came out, you know, and then another thing I like about my photo pro, there's this little hook that folds under and you can lower that hook and hang a bag on it. I do that at night sky. I've got my extra gear in there and it gives a little more support holding things heavy, you know, particularly in storms and stuff. That's a great feature to have. Does it have a leveling bowl or do you have to, you know, do you have to fiddle around trying to get the legs level? You know, there's different ways, and, and we can talk another time about leveling heads for, for ball heads and gimbals and stuff that aren't built into the tripod. Please, please, please put your hand on a tripod before you buy it. Do the flex test. Check out the features. Get screw legs. Make sure its height is good for your height, that you're not going to kill your neck using this thing. Make sure that it is weight rated for your gear and then plus some. Don't think about, does it work well when you're standing in the middle of a store with no climatic issues going on? Could you possibly use this at the edge of the, uh, where waves are crashing? Could you use this on soft sand? Could you use it on ice and snow? Could you use it when the wind's 20, 30, 40 miles an hour? Hmm? Well, I'm never photographing that. Well, then you're not photographing a lot of storms. You're not, I photograph in that kind of wind all the time. There are so many things that need to be considered before how cheap it is. Trust me. Again, 90, 95% of clients are understaffed when it comes to their tripod. Do you want to put thousands of dollars of gear on a $150 tripod? I would suggest that's a bad idea. Just as bad an idea as leaving a camera strap on a camera on a tripod. Oh my gosh. If, and I see people, they set their tripod up, they put their camera on it, and then they put the strap around their neck. Oh dear Lord, I can't, that, that's as bad a technique as I've ever seen. I mean, besides you're probably going to jerk things around, you, you're, that strap, all that is is a sail for the wind to catch and move your camera and your tripod or to catch on something and pull it over. It's another reason I like using black rapid straps. I can easily disconnect them. Do not ever leave a neck strap attached to a camera on a tripod. You shouldn't have a camera hanging from your neck. That's another issue. So hopefully that'll help you picking out a tripod. They're immature. They're immature. They look eagerly. Yeah. <laughs> hey, nature photographers. In today's segment of setting yourself up for success, where we normally take a look at just the technical side of photography, 
Today, I'm going to be sharing about five tips for beginning bird photographers. Some of this is technical, but some of it is technical in the sense of your field craft, not just the technical parts of your camera or exposure or photographic theory or things like that. So uh, I, I decided to share these tips because oftentimes I don't hardly ever post on social media, on, on at least in groups. I post images on mine and, and keep it positive, but, you know, so much really bad information on social media, whether it be, you know, Facebook, I prefer Instagram. Having said that, let me, let me encourage bird photographers because bird photographer is a wonderful hobby or job or, you know, whatever you want to call it. I got, I got into photography through birds. Now I've expanded my, my interests, my repertoire, my genres dramatically. In fact, right in front of me on a table, I've got all my underwater camera gear out, looking at what things I still need and, and looking at getting my scuba certification as soon as I can. And that I'm not going to lead workshops. That's just going to be for me to have fun. And I, I like the challenge of it and, and to just do something because I, I always like learning and doing new things. But I wanted to share five tips with you today to help set you up for success because so much of what I see is failure online is a result of not understanding some of these concepts. So without further ado, let's jump right into today's first tip. Number one, I want you to think about creating opportunities for success by having realistic expectations of your focal length and your autofocus. Let me say that again. I want you to create opportunities for success by having realistic expectations of focal length and autofocus. Just because you can shoot at 500 millimeters or 800 millimeters or even 1,000 millimeters does not mean you can shoot a bird 100 yards away, crop the ever-loving crap out of it, and then have a nice, sharp image. What happens with a lot of beginning bird photographers, they finally get their long lens. You know, if you have a 300 millimeter or less, odds are you're not going to really be having a lot of success unless you go to the Galapagos or you sit in some bird blinds where birds are habituated or you're, you know, you got birds coming to a backyard bird photography set up and, and you, you know, you can get really close to the birds then. You know, for most bird photography, I 400 is going to be my shortest. I would I would never buy a 400 millimeter uh you know, non-zoom lens. I I used to have the old Canons 100 to 400 and, you know, things like that. But for me, it's just not sufficient length because I don't shoot birds that are a long ass ways off. That's just not how I photograph. So here's, here's where you can have some realistic expectations. Just because you have a long focal length doesn't mean you can shoot birds further away. In a way it does, but what it means is when you work to get closer to birds, you can more get more images of them larger in the frame. The goal is not to shoot a ton off, you know, long ways away, and then crop the crap out of it. That's why so many bird photographers are always bragging about full-frame sensors. They need them because they have no field craft, because they're going to photograph something a long ways away, and they want to crop the ever-loving crap out of it. I rarely ever crop even birds in flight i'm trying to compose i'm at the point now where if i didn't nail it most of the time while it's flying i don't bother spending a ton trying to quote unquote you know get it where i want it now if it's a great wing angle or something like that you know i might but the hoops people go through to get an image where they want it just blows me away right don't think that just because you have a long focal length you know you finally saved up the money and got it that now you don't have to work on getting close to birds you know if i'm shooting at 800 millimeters i would still like a warbler to be within 20 feet I mean, I still want a warbler close. 
I want those kind of images where every little detail in the plumage shows. You know, I love that. I don't want to shoot a bird a long ways away and crop it. Yeah, I used to when I was when I was younger. I uh, mean, I crop the crap out of them, but you know, I want better images. I just want better images. And what happens is when you have unrealistic expectations. First off, you shoot a bird, you know, 200 yards away, and then you crop the image, you know, down to 30% of the original. And then you zoom in at 300% online, and then you post on Facebook, and you ask, why isn't this image sharp? Is there something wrong with my gear? But you don't tell everybody that you shot a bird 200 yards away, that you cropped it to 30% of the original. But it just drives me nuts. It's why I seriously am, I'm not hardly on any Facebook groups. I just can't take that silliness anymore. Because what happens is people start trying to give them an answer. Oh, well, maybe there's something. Beginning photography. 99% of the time, it isn't the gear. Let me just give you a hint. 99% of the time, it isn't the gear. It's the photographer. And that might be your expectations. It might be your technique. It might be your expectation. Whatever. It's not the gear. Yeah, every now and then gear doesn't work. Yep. Oh, gosh. Well, this lens must be. Nope. It's you. I don't know how many times I've grabbed gear from a client that said it wasn't working and immediately took a great shot. You know? Nope. It's you most time. And if I have something wrong with my stuff, guess what? Most time it's me. It's not the gear. That's It's not the gear's problem. By having realistic expectation of your focal length, if your maximum focal length is 300 and you see some of these great shots that some of us professionals post or great amateurs post, you know, and you wonder why you're not getting that, you don't have enough lens for bird photography. The downside of bird photography is it's one of the most expensive forms because of the one lens you need, the focal length you need. Those aren't cheap. Now, again, under tip number one, having realistic expectations for autofocus. How often are you trying to photograph a bird deep in a tree, right? Crappy light, dappled light, not looking good. And then you wonder why the hell your autofocus won't grab the bird because there's 1,733 other possible points of contrast that your autofocus is trying to catch. A, you probably have never thought about what autofocus point configurations you should use in different situations. No one configuration works for every situation. B, you've got the new bird tracking, AI tracking on OM system, which is phenomenal in the new OM1. And even I see people complaining about that. Yeah, they're probably using it in situations where there's no contrast or they're too far from the bird. You have to understand, if you photograph a bird with bird tracking, and that bird is 50 yards out. And then you crop the crap out of it. You crop it at 50% or 60%, 70%. And then you look at the eye and you wonder why the eye, eye is tacked sharp. You don't have realistic expectations. It can't find an eye on a five-inch bird 50 yards away. It might grab the whole body. But you are doing things to the image. You're doing things to your raw file. You're, and then you're probably not sharpening correctly in post and all this other stuff. But... You've got to have realistic expectations. I have a saying, and I haven't heard anybody else say it. I think I'm going to attribute this one to me because I haven't heard anybody else say it. Oftentimes, the biggest difference between a professional photographer and an amateur photographer is knowing when to not press the shutter button. I talked about the difference between bird photography and birding with a camera. Birders with a camera just want to photograph every bird they see, and then they wonder why it's not the same. Trust me, I can grab your gear. I can go get a tack sharp shot because I know when to press the shutter button. I know what conditions or autofocus is going to struggle. I understand how autofocus points work. Is it a cross type? Is it horizontal? How many autofocus points do you have? You know, on an overcast day when there's not a big contrast difference or you've got a big bird, right? And it's got a constant plumage that doesn't provide much contrast from the eye and all. That's tougher 
than when you got a bird with a bright plumage color and a dark eye. Understand how these things work. Invest time in your craft, even if it's just a hobby or just don't get so frustrated. Understand the inherent limitations on even the best. I mean, the OM-1 is the fastest computational camera on the market. No cameras faster in terms of its computer operating speed, okay? Promise you, there's not one out there. And yet I know that there are certain circumstances which autofocus AI tracking may not be perfect. And you know what? I'm okay with that because I understand what it's looking for. Most of the time I use all autofocus points uh, when I'm doing AI tracking. However, there are some instances where I'm going to switch away from tracking and I'm going to go back to just regular old autofocus like we had back in the old days, you know, a couple of years ago. It's because I understand that on snow, a white bird, if it's not facing me, then there's no eye and it's going to go in and out. Well, you know, are you, do you have certain things set up to help minimize that? Let go of the autofocus button, use back button focus, and then you can let off. Keep your shutter button half pressed, ready to take a picture for when it does look at you. Then bump autofocus, get it on the eye, boom, take your image, right? A lot of this bird tracking and mammal tracking, like what we have on OM system, you know, they've got their dog and cat, which works great for bears. I've had it work for snakes and insects. It still has to see an eye. And if the bird turns away, let go, let go of your focus button. Have realistic expectations and you're going to minimize your frustration. Tip number two, begin to learn proper, I emphasize proper, post-processing now. Post-processing is every bit as much a part of your hobby, your job, if you're a professional, whatever, as is your field craft. You must learn it. You must take the time to learn the software because the reason a lot of people won't shoot at high ISO is because they don't know how to post-process high ISO images. That's why I'm putting this webinar together. It's called the Nervous Nature Photographer's Guide to Shooting at High ISO. Don't wait. I know it can be tedious. I know it isn't always intuitive. So what? Take classes. Go to a workshop that's designed for post-processing, you know? Watch videos. Read a manual. Read a book. God forbid you read something, you know? Uh, I know our society's moving more and more away from it, but that's how I like to learn. Begin to learn proper post-processing. Now, I'm worried less about which software you use than I'm worried about how well you know how to use it. Do you understand that every raw file needs some pre-sharpening? And then depending on what you're doing with that file post-sharpening? Yeah, there's two stages of sharpening. Do you know if you're shooting at high ISO that selective sharpening is way better than just applying you know, heavy sharpening to the old image? That's it. Begin to learn post-processing now. Pick a software and go with it and master it. Number three, okay, here's my third tip for beginning bird photographers. Work on field craft. Lee, what do you mean by field craft? I mean how to approach and understand bird subjects so that you can get better shots and read the light. If you've got a warbler 180 feet up in a coniferous tree, maybe just don't bother, you know, unless all you want is an ID shot, then fire away, you know, good luck, right? Why take that shot? That's not going to be a good shot. Again, if you're a birder with a camera, yeah, I understand you want a picture of the butt, the vent, maybe to see the color, whatever. Great, fine, have a ball. However, it's not going to be a great shot. You know, if you watch, you know, a lot of the OM system pro ambassadors who do bird photography, look at the kind of images, look at the angles the birds are at. You don't see us shooting up at birds up in the top of trees 150 feet away. Fieldcraft is knowing 
how to approach certain bird species. I'll never forget a time when I was learning about shorebird photography. If you try to walk up to a flock of shorebirds or terns, you know, you've seen joggers and other, un, you know, unknowledgeable birders or photographers, and they just walk towards a group of birds, man, they flush them in a heartbeat. But, you know, I'll never forget the first time I got on my belly and crawled and got within six feet of a common turn. And then a jogger came by and flushed them. I'm like, dude, how'd you not see me? You know, what's going on? Well, they'll come back. I'm like, you have no idea what you're talking about. I'll never forget getting within six feet by crawling. Yep, I had sand down my crotch. Yep, and I hate sand down my crotch, trust me. If you like it, there's something wrong with you. I'll never forget what that felt like, and I understood, aha, I know how to move slowly. Don't whip your camera gear around, right? And understanding how different families of birds behave, how different genuses within a family operate, and how different species within a genus tend to operate. And there's some sparrows, man, no problem getting close to them. There are others that trying to get them in a good spot to photograph is going to be very, very difficult, like a LeConte sparrow. I think I've talked about before, don't just buy a field guide on birds, buy a guide to bird behavior. Learn that birds take off facing into the wind. That's going to help you tremendously on your raptor photography, on your waterfowl. Learn how birds behave and your field craft will get better. Field craft is learning how to walk quietly on gravel. Don't drag your feet. Oh my God, the number of people sitting in blinds that when they want to move and they slide their feet instead of picking them up. You know what? Everybody's worried about talking. I don't know any predators that talk before they grab their prey. Talking is so overrated in terms of disturbing wildlife. Way overrated, promise you. I've been out in the field all the time. I have a friend. We gab all the time in blinds, getting great shots. Yeah, certain species you might get a little quiet on, right? However, predators do accidentally at times push gravel, slide, whip a branch, right? Sudden flashes of white. Think about the bellies of most predators. Whether it be a snake, a mammal, or a bird, they often have a pale underside. So all of a sudden, if you're a prey item, all of a sudden you see this flash of white. Bam! Next thing you know, uh-oh, you're taken. You're done. It's not talking. Predators don't talk before they come in. So fourth tip is related to understand bird behaviors that varies, okay? Related to your field craft on getting close. The more you know what you're photographing, the better you'll be. Now, obviously, you know, if you're going to Africa and you've never been, well, you're, you often have a local guide that's going to help you with that. Now, they need to understand something about photography. There's a big difference between a birding guide and a photography guide. Birding guide doesn't give a rat's ass what direction the light is, okay? Unless they've spent time learning. Most likely they don't. They don't care if you, how close you can get to a bird. People wonder why I charge more for bird photography than birding in Big Ben. I am working a lot harder to get you in a good spot for the bird. I'm trying to tell you where to go stand, how to approach. You know, like one thing about knowing bird behavior is if a bird doesn't see you, it's generally not very concerned. So if I can put a tree trunk between me and the bird and walk towards it that way, that's going to help me all the time. So put that one under your field craft. But on understanding bird behavior, get the right books read about it. And most field guides have gotten so long that they keep removing more and more bird behavior. I can't tell you how many folks I've seen photographing flycatchers and the bird flies off and they immediately start to drop their camera. Wait a minute. A lot of species are going to come back right to that same perch. Tip number five for beginning bird photographers, shoot at a high enough ISO so you have a fast enough shutter speed to have a sharp image. My gosh, who cares what your ISO is if it's a blurry image? I don't care that it's a nice, noiseless image at ISO 800. If it's blurry, you're still, it's still a crappy shot. This one drives me nuts. And it's all because people don't properly expose a high ISO image. Expose to the right. Make sure that their image is tack sharp to begin with. 
So at high ISOs, I'm really worried about sharpness, fast enough shutter speed, and properly expose. And then learn how to properly post-process it, as I've already said. For beginning bird photographers, a recommended minimum shutter speed for most bird situations is 1,250, 1250. 1 over 1250, however you want to say it. It's a fraction of a second. That is a very short amount of time. You know what? You got a peregrine in flight. That's probably still not going to be enough. But for perch birds, you know, for even for a foraging warbler, that's probably going to help you. So when I turn on my OM system cameras for wildlife, my default starting ISO is 1600 because I'm often shooting early and late, right? So I don't wanna have to automatically be adjusting my ISO up to get a fast enough shutter speed. That's where I start at. For landscapes, when it turns on, it's ISO 400. And I've had some people, why are you shooting such high ISOs? I'm like, my God, what is your definition of high ISO? Clearly it's not a correct one. I just had an ISO 3200 image taken with an OM system EM1X at ISO 3200. Beautiful image in the snow of a dark-eyed junco on the cover of Parks and Wildlife magazine. So am I worried about shooting at high ISO? No, because I understand what it takes to get a great image at high ISO. So five tips. Let's, let's review them. Create opportunities for success by having realistic expectations of focal length and autofocus. Begin to learn proper post-processing now. Work on your field craft on approaching birds for better shots and positioning for light. Understand bird behaviors that varies by family, genus, and species. And finally, shoot at a high enough ISO so you have a fast enough shutter speed to have a sharp image. My recommended minimum shutter speed is 1 1250th of a second for most situations. All right, guys, I hope that helps you out there for those of you that are bird photographers. Hey, guys, that's another episode of Capturing Nature. But before you turn it off, a couple of things I'd like to share with you. One, I've got some upcoming events. I'm going to be at the Southeast Arizona Birding Festival coming up here in August in Tucson. I'll be doing a couple of presentations. One will be mastering bird photography. And one, I'll be one of the evening speakers talking about making the most of the birding experience. I'll be manning the Wildside Nature Tour booth along with Elise Bender or Bender as we like to call her. Uh, she's new to Wildside, a phenomenal photographer. So, and she'll be speaking on Japan. Oh my gosh. I don't know if that one's during when we have the booth or not, but I'd sure like to see that presentation. She lived in Japan and put together an amazing photographic workshop for Japan. So come out and see us at the Southeast Arizona Birding Festival. I'll be doing some other photography classes with Elise. So come on out, say hi or say howdy y'all. I am from Texas. Now I'm going to be doing some new online webinars through the Wildside Nature Tours Big Marker website. I'll be doing a $20 class called The Art and Science of Reading and Chasing Natural Light. I can tell you this is the most extensive presentation I've put together so far. I put more effort, more work, more slides. This is going to be quite the bang for your buck. You will learn to look at natural light in ways you never have before. I'll be having a free webinar called Yellowstone in Winter. I'll be talking about, you know, how to plan a trip, what to take, what you need to know about exposing in the snow. I have two workshops in Yellowstone coming up in January and February, I believe, right around that time frame. I think I have space on the second one with Earl Nottingham, who's a retired Texas Parks and Wildlife chief photographer. Spent over 25 years there, and he'll be with me. Uh, Jennifer Lee Warner will be joining me on the other one, and that one is already sold out. 
Finally, some of my upcoming workshops. Capture the Hummingbird Photography Workshops. I have a, a few spaces left here in August up in my home in Fort Davis, out in West Texas. That's a great one. I provide all the flash gear. You just bring your camera, lens, tripod. I have everything else, and I only have two or three people usually on each of those, so it's a great opportunity. I have a Big Ben Summer Storms and Starry Skies August workshop through Precision Camera and Video. Still have a few spaces. If you want to try to chase lightning, storms, black and white images, it's a great chance. We just wrapped up an awesome one. I'll be going back to the Galapagos Islands with Wildside in September. That one might be sold out, but we still offer other Galapagos workshops. So get on the Wildside website and check those out. Grand Tetons in Yellowstone National Park in September. That is an OM system only. My first one for OM system where we can learn all of the special features just on the OM system cameras. Bosque del Apache this winter with for precision camera and video. Man, I make sure we get out early, get the best spots and get some great images. Again, Yellowstone winter, I've got space. And then I'm going to Zimbabwe in January. So you wanna make sure to set aside some time. I think I have half of that one sold out. And that should be an amazing experience. Adrian Benz with Wildside is our naturalist, and I will be your photography instructor. Hey, listen, guys, I really want to thank you for your time and dedication and tuning in. If you would do me a favor, if you would make sure to subscribe, hit the like button, and please share this with your other photography friends. Let them know about it. I put a lot of time, effort. I don't make any money doing this. This is for your benefit. So if you'll share this, it'd sure be nice if at some point it would generate a little bit of income for me, uh, maybe to help offset my, my gas prices out here in West Texas. Listen, guys, have a great day. Get out. Go shoot.